Hello, and welcome to this Clinical Care Options HIV podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Swanson. Today's episode features coverage of HIV data from the recent conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infections, or Virtual CROI 2021, which was organized by the CROI Foundation in partnership with the International Antiviral Society, USA. During this podcast, Dr. Chloe Orkin from Queen Mary University of London We'll discuss important HIV data presented at the conference, including new findings on HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, HIV and COVID-19, antiretroviral therapy in pregnancy and the postpartum period, as well as the comparative efficacy of various antiretroviral regimens. For more information on Dr. Orkin and for a link to additional online CCO coverage of Virtual CROI 2021, including a downloadable slide set covering the studies discussed in this podcast episode, please visit the show notes. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Orkin has to say about these exciting new data. Hello, everybody, and it's wonderful to be with you with you here today. I think I'll start with a couple of reflections about the conference. I have to say it was extraordinary. Extraordinary because the virtual platform was really interactive, vibrant, and lively, and it worked. Extraordinary because despite this terrible, terrible year we've all had, so much science in HIV actually happened and so many investigators completed uh, their studies and actually were able to present them to us. And I found that exceptional. It was also exceptional because we were able to sit in the audience and watch breaking COVID data news on neutralizing antibodies, on new antiviral drugs. And it really made the whole year feel like uh, as an investigator, which I've been, uh, really worthwhile to be part of such a huge international endeavour. So it was very exciting. And I hope I can bring to you uh, some of the best data from the conference. So starting with PrEP. Um, so hopefully here you're going to find the answer to that question. There was this ANRS Prevenir study, and this is a prospective cohort study of daily versus on-demand oral FTC TDF PrEP in the Paris uh, surrounding regions. And this was a multi-label open, a multi-center open-label prospective cohort study, mainly 98% in MSM from Paris, as I've said. And it was a follow-up study uh, from the IPRAGAY study, which was a randomized trial. So essentially, this was enrolling HIV-negative adults at really high risk of HIV infection with inconsistent condom use, normal renal function, and who were negative, uh, HBS antigen negative in the on-demand arm. So it started in 2017, and the men were randomized basically to receive daily FTC TDF PrEP or on-demand PrEP. And they had the choice as to which arm they went into. The on-demand PrEP was given with two doses before sex and one dose for the following two days after sex. Primary endpoint was greater than 15% reduction of new incident HIV diagnosis uh, in the Paris uh, cohort uh, versus the reported national surveillance network uh, from 2016. Uh, And secondary endpoints were HIV incidents, uh, PrEP adherence, sexual behavior, and safety. So, Uh, The primary endpoint hasn't been evaluated, and this is because of the disruption of HIV diagnoses by the pandemic, so the surveillance cohort wasn't uh, sufficient to make the comparison. So we're going to look at the secondary endpoints in terms of overall incidence, uh, which was actually 0.11 per 100-person years. 
And this translated into three insulin cases in each arm. And this means that, that uh, going on to PrEP in this way uh, averted an estimated 361 infections. And this is based on the, the, the uh, predicted incidence reported uh, during the EPIGA study of 6.6 per 100 person years. So if we look at the outcome in terms of HIV incidence, you can see it was exactly the same whether you had daily PrEP or on-demand PrEP. You don't need to be a statistician to see that 0.12 equals 0.12. So let's think about prophylaxis at the last sexual encounter. Uh, so what actually happened with these encounters, you can see uh, that more people in the daily PrEP arm actually use PrEP in the last encounter, but everybody was using it correctly pretty much. Uh, and you can see that some people chose not to use PrEP uh, during the study at times, 18.4 uh, versus 4.3%. But the condom use rates were very low. Only about 20% of people use condoms. So you can see it was a really high-risk cohort and really reflective of the question we're asking. So in terms of safety, tolerability, and STIs, uh, this, the rate of discontinuation was low, 14.4 per 100-person years. Uh, and if we look at any STI until two months before the pandemic, 75% had STIs, so really, really high rates. And viral hepatitis was particularly uh, common, 0.76 per 100 person years. And this was driven predominantly by hepatitis C, as you can see. Thinking about drug-related adverse events, what you see is that there were fewer drug-related adverse events on the daily PrEP arm than on the on-demand arm. So people on the on-demand arm had more drug-related adverse events, and maybe this was due to stopping and starting, and when you restart, you experience the side effects and you get tolerant to them if you're taking it daily. And the side effects that they experienced were mainly GI side effects. There was nothing serious to report, um, and that's really the key highlight in terms of safety. So my take-home points from the study are that amongst MSM who elected to use daily or on-demand FTC-TDF PrEP for prevention of HIV infection, both regimens were equally effective for HIV prevention. They were both really well tolerated with few discontinuations. There was a slightly higher rate of drug-related adverse events in the on-demand group. There was a really high incidence of STIs observed. Um, but because it's non-randomized and it was based on participant choice, it's, uh, the, the design slightly limits the generalizability of the results. So I'm going to move to the next study, and this is a really, also a really, really exciting study. And this is uh, the lab analysis of HIV infections in the HP2, HPTN083 study. And this is the injectable cabotegravir for PrEP study. Now, you will recall that the interim analysis has already been presented, but I'll remind you that this is an international randomized double-blind phase 2b3 study, and it was terminated at interim analysis in May last year because 25% of the endpoints were already accrued. And what was found is that PrEP with long-acting cabotegravir uh, LA was significantly superior to daily oral FTC-TDF in reducing incident HIV infection. So the study uh, reported early. Um, so the, the study was for HIV uninfected MSN and transgender women who have sex with men who are over 18 and at high risk of infection without hepatitis and with no contraindications. So the important point about the study to mention is that it was double blind. So 
the participants, everyone received injections, whether they were actually cabotegravir or placebo. So the participants were really amazing. They, they had injections regardless of whether they were actually getting active compound all the way through the study. And that's really quite phenomenal. Um, so the primary endpoint analysis of the incident HIV infections identified 58 baseline uh, and incident infections in the whole cohort. And 16 of them were in the Cabotegravir LA arm. 12 of them were incident infections. In other words, uh, they weren't baseline infections. And 42 uh, in the FTC TDF arm, of which 39 were incident. And there was a whole lot of lab analysis that went on, which we're going to talk about uh, subsequent uh, to the interim, uh, interim findings. So in terms of incident infections, I'll show you this again in terms of the rate. You can see 12 infections for cabotegravir versus 39 for FTC-TDF. And you can see the hazard ratio overwhelmingly showing superiority uh, with uh, a reduction, uh, a significant reduction of 68% for the cohort who received cabotegravir LA versus FTC-TDF. Now, this slide looks busy. I'm going to take you through it because in this study, really, the devil is in the detail. So we're looking here on this slide at the cabotegravir LA arm, what happened to the people. So there's four baseline and 12 incident infections. So if you look at the from, from the, the A1 to D4, these are actual participants numbered. Uh, and A1 to A4 in green are baseline infections. B1 to B5 were infections that occurred after a prolonged delay in cabotegravir dosing, so people who missed their dose and had it late. Um, C1 to three were infections during the oral lead-in phase because everybody received firstly a a monthly oral lead-in before they got the injections. And D were four people who, despite having their injections on time, and having the right drug levels for cabotegravir still became HIV positive, and they weren't positive at baseline. So you can see that there were infections at all of these different points during the study. Um, in terms of HIV infections and resistance, of the CAB cases, uh, there were seven who had resistance mutations, and they were the classic mutations you would expect, the 148R or the R263K. There was also some NNRTI and NRTI resistance. Uh, importantly, retrospective HIV testing identified infection earlier than the antigen-antibody testing on the study. Uh, so actually doing, doing a viral load was much more reliable than doing the antigen antibody testing, particularly in people who are on cabotegravir, which actually attenuates and makes the, 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 the test, the antigen antibody tests uh, change slower. Um, so FTC and TDF, uh, there were 42 infections, 39 were incident. Um, and interestingly, you can see that these incident infections were almost exclusively due to suboptimal drug concentrations. And there were some resistance mutations to NRTIs and NNRTIs. So the take-home points for me are that of the 12 incident HIV infections in the CAB arm, four, of, four were observed in participants with perfectly on-time injections and adequate cabotegravir concentrations. The detection of HIV infection using standard testing algorithms was actually delayed and attenuated in patients receiving cabotegravir LA. And HIV RNA and antibody testers reverted to negative and became non-reactive in some cases earlier in infection. 
For integrase resistance, uh, this was observed upon viremic escape at higher CAB concentrations, but interestingly, it wasn't observed in the three tail phase infections or one tail phase escape case, so once the TDF-FTC was provided uh, subsequently. So prompt diagnosis and initiation of, of, of antiretrovirals are really important to avoid resistance with cabotegravir LA. Uh, and non-adherence to daily oral pills are likely contributed to the higher incidence uh, of failure in the, in the uh, FTC TDF arm. And I, I really stress that point because in the initial analysis, uh, the adherence was, was actually seen as very as excellent and the participants claimed excellent adherence. But you can see the failures were in fact related to non-adherence and oral therapy as we tend to normally see. So I'm going to move to immunosuppression and COVID outcomes. So this is the million-dollar question. We've all been trying to find out. There have been loads of analyses, but this is a really, really powerful analysis, large-scale analysis, looking at COVID-19 among people with HIV or solid organ transplants. So immunosuppression, what effect does this have? So it is an analysis of patient-level data from 39 U.S. clinical centers in the National COVID Cohort Collective on COVID hospitalization and ventilation among people with HIV or a history of solid organ transplant, SOT, both of those things or neither. And the COVID cohort consisted of 575,000 adults between over, the, over a year period. And the COVID diagnosis was based on an RT-PCR positive swab or an antigen test within a range of time around the, the time of admission. So uh, there was a logistic regression analysis conducted for the odds of hospitalization and the odds of mechanical ventilation uh, by immunosuppression group uh, and also regression analysis looking at uh, the estimate of hazard or hospitalization within 45 days. And the analysis uh, adjusted for demographics and comorbidities. So um, if we look at the outcomes, so percentage who were hospitalized, for people who are HIV negative and, and SOT negative, 30% were hospitalized and 1.9% were ventilated. For HIV alone, 48.5 versus 5%. SOT alone, even higher, 63.8 versus 9.9, both even higher. Odds of hospitalization, you can see, get higher and higher uh, for H from HIV alone through to, to both. Uh, and in terms of odds of ventilation, you can see almost double for HIV alone uh, and SOT alone. And this is having adjusted uh, for uh, age, sex, race, ethnicity, study site and comorbidities. Now we're going to look at hospitalization, uh, survival probability and risk of hospitalization. So the, so the survival probability was highest if you didn't have HIV or solid organ uh, transplants uh, and next highest with HIV and followed by the other groups. The majority of hospitalizations within 21 days, that's pretty standard. Um, but the hazard was higher in immunosuppressed groups. HIV, 21% increase, SOT, 55%, HIV, SOT, 67%. Importantly, among the people with HIV, the increased risk of hospitalization was driven by comorbidities such as cardiopulmonary uh, and renal disease. So basically, just to sum it up, it's a lot of data. People with HIV and solid organ transplants more likely to be hospitalized and ventilated, uh, independent of demographic factors. Um, increased risk in immunosuppressed groups driven mainly by comorbid conditions in HIV, specifically renal comorbidity and cardiopulmonary disease. 
So antiretrovirals in pregnancy and postpartum, there are two studies I'm going to show you. This one is the Dolphin 2 study comparing dolutegavir versus efavirenz in late pregnancy, so beyond 28 weeks. And we're going to be examining the period uh, to 72 weeks postpartum, a very ill-studied period, so a very important study. Uh, and these are for women uh, who had, had no antiretrovirals within uh, 12 months. Uh, and uh, they, as I said, got dolutegavir, efavirenz plus two nukes. So the primary endpoints being presented, it showed that dolutegavir was superior to efavirenz-based therapy for HIV RNA less than 50 at delivery. Here we're looking at secondary endpoints at 72 weeks, virological efficacy in terms of time to virological uh, undetectability, failures, um, and maternal and fetal outcomes. So uh, virological efficacy, time to virological failure at week 72, you can see that uh, for the dolutegavir in blue versus efavirenz, much faster time to suppression, and this was highly statistically significant, whether you look at the viral load less than 50 on the left or viral load less than 1,000 on the right. So highly statistically significant, better for dolutegavir than efavirenz, faster uh, for dolutegavir than efavirenz, with fewer virological failures, a 2.4 versus 6.4% in dolutegavir versus efavirenz arms. Maternal infant safety data, uh, what you see here is that numerically these were pretty similar, just taking you through them, uh, not, not very different uh, numerically uh, or statistically. Uh, and in terms of mother to child uh, MTCT, MTCT, there were three transmissions in the DTG arm. And these were believed to have occurred in utero based on the timings. There was one transmission in the efavirenz arm, but this occurred postpartum in a breastfed in infant despite maternal virological suppression. So the take-home points is that both regimens were very safe and well-tolerated, and that's great news. But the dolutegavir regime shows superior time to viral suppression compared with efavirenz. And this is supportive of the WHO treatment guidelines recommending dolutegavir in pregnancy. The postpartum infant infection during breastfeeding does uh, evidence that it is possible to transmit during breastfeeding even when you are suppressed. So IMPACT 2010, this study looks at the safety and efficacy of dolutegavir versus efavirenz, and it also looks at the difference between TDF and TAF with dolutegavir in pregnancy and the postpartum period. Uh, and these women were allowed to be uh, uh, enrolled earlier, between 14 to 28 weeks. You can see the three arms are there, and we're following this up after 50 weeks. Um, so primary safety endpoints, we're going to be looking at uh, efficacy endpoints, uh, and in terms of uh, rates of virological suppression at delivery and adverse events. Uh, so this was th these were presented in the prior analysis showing significantly higher dolutegavir versus efavirenz, uh, faster suppression like before, uh, and fewer uh, adverse uh, pregnancy outcomes with dolutegavir, FTC, and TAF versus the other arms. So this analysis is going to look at updated safety and efficacy through the postpartum period. So what we see, um, firstly on the left, is at the postpartum uh, week 50 visit, there was no difference uh, between the combined TAF arms and efavirenz FTC and TDF. Um, and, but when we look at the, uh, at the maternal virological failure uh, in terms of two successful viral loads greater than 200 at more than 20 weeks on study, here you see a statistically significant difference between efavirenz uh, and the, the DTG, FTC, and TAF arm uh, specifically. 
Um, so if we look at maternal infant safety uh, data through week, uh, week uh, 50, uh, we don't see statistically significant differences in maternal AEs, infant grade AEs, or stillbirths, but we do see statistically significant differences uh, showing that uh, DTG, FTC, and TAF perform better uh, than efavirenz. Uh, and that the other Dolutegravir FC TDF arm also uh, perform better than efavirenz. You can see that in terms of uh, a trend, there's a trend towards DTGFC and TAF doing better on the maternal infant grade and stillbirth outcomes, but not, none of the other categories were significant. Uh, in terms of maternal weight change, now this is important. Uh, what we see here is that um, in terms of the weight loss, okay, weekly weight change, the least amount of weight loss was in the TAF arm with DTG, middle was uh, TAF and TDF, and the most weight loss was in the efavirenz arm. And if we look at the reverse, which is maternal BMI greater than 30, uh, these were not didn't reach statistical significance, um, but you can see that numerically, the most weight gain numerically was in the TAF arm, that's not surprising, with DTG, followed by the DTG uh, TDF arm with the least in efavirenz. So the take-home points, similar virological suppression at week 50, um, more women failed in their favorins arm. The grade three AEs were very similar across the arms. Results provide reassuring data for DTG and TAF during pregnancy in the postpartum period. Please note that this is the first study to report on TAF in pregnancy, and it's the basis of, of it being included in several international guidelines. So it's an important study. New antiretroviral data. I'm going to move now on to ATLAS 2M, long-acting injectable cabotegravir or pivarine. This study, the 2M study, evaluated the long-acting treatment either given monthly or every two months. So it's a randomized multi-center international phase 3B trial, and it took people who were virologically suppressed. Some of the people came from the ATLAS trial, and they were already on injectable monthly cabotegravir pivarine. Some were on the oral arm within that study, and some were newly enrolled people. But all of them had to have no, no evidence of hepatitis B or resistance. So they were randomized to get the drug 600, uh, 900 every eight weeks, or 400, 600 every four weeks. Um, we're looking at 96-week data. We're looking at uh, virological, uh, virological uh, escape. So um, looking at suppression and resistance, what we see here, again, you don't need to be a genius to see uh, that the regimens performed very similarly in terms of efficacy and met the criteria for non-inferiority. In terms of uh, CVF, uh, there were two failures in the Q4 arm versus nine in the QA arm. With one case of resist, uh, one case of failure that occurred between week forty-eight and week ninety-six. So, what effect does this have on resistance? Well, what we know from the whole cabotegravir pivarine program is that when people fail, they fail with resistance to pivarine and to integrase inhibitors most commonly in almost every case. And this occurred: seven out of nine in the Q8 arm who failed had pivarine mutations. One in two for the Q4 for integrase inhibitors. Five out of nine in the Q8 arm had resistance versus two out of two in the Q4. So it's not surprising in keeping the other data. What about safety and tolerability? So the first thing to say, summary statement, is the adverse event profiles between Q8 and Q4 are very consistent between week 48 and week 96. Really similar in terms of uh, sort of NEAEs, um, but in terms of ad adverse events leading to withdrawal, what you see here uh, is 
18 for Q8 versus 19 for Q4. Um, but in terms of drug-related adverse events leading to withdrawal, there were actually fewer in the Q8 than the Q4 arm, and there was no significant differences in serious adverse events. So now let's go to the right of the slide, look at injection site reactions. So if we look at the number of injections, firstly, you can see obviously there were double the number of injections in the Q4 arm because they had double the number of injections. Um, so they're going to be more uh, ISRs reported, obviously. Um, but if we look at how the injection site reactions were experienced, um, the, about 20% of people in the Q8 arm had pain versus 14% in the Q4 arm. Nodules occurred exactly the same rate as normal in all the studies, about 1%. In site discomfort, around 1%. Um, almost 90% of them were more were, were grade 1 and 2. And the median duration uh, was three days. This is the important one in the box. The withdrawals that led uh, to the, the, the injections, uh, the, the, the participants who decided to withdraw from the study based on injections. That took me a while to get there, but anyway. Um, you can see that QA arm, uh, there were seven, and there were more people that chose to withdraw from the study from, uh, due to the injections in the Q4 arm, which gives an indicator that people preferred the QA arm, which in fact they did. Um, and you can see um, that although people were uh, experiencing at 48 week, 23% had um, ISRs um, versus 20%. You can see that in both arms, they go down in year two, which is again consistent with other data. So the take-home points for Atlas 2M are that both regimens maintained a high level of suppression, demonstrating non-inferiority of Q8 versus Q4 with a very low overall rate of of CVF, only one more person between week 48 and week 96. The overall rate was 1%, which is 11 people out of 1,045 people. Um, and long-acting cavitegravir recovery is well-tolerated with no new safety signals. Almost all of the ISRs of grade 1 and 2 decreased in frequency over time. So the next study is four-year data with bactegravir, FTC, and TAF for initial treatment. Um, and you'll recognize these studies, I'm sure, the 1489-1490 treatment-naive studies. One compared a Bacavir-3C uh, dolutegravir versus BF-TAF. The other one compared BF-TAF to uh, DTG, FTC, and TAF. And they went open-label at week 144. Uh, and what we're looking at here uh, is the safety and efficacy of just BF-TAF uh, through this, this time period. Um, so you can see in terms of 192-week uh, biological outcomes and resistance um, for 1489, those in BFTF, 99% uh, who were on the arm uh, remain undetectable versus 99% on the other study. No emergent resistance to any BFTF component. One participant did develop NRTI resistance on the DTG back of 3 tc arm. They were switched to BFTF and achieved and maintained suppression less than 50 copies. Um, and uh, efficacy was maintained in those who switched from DTG-containing regimens to BFTAF week 144 or later. Um, safety and tolerability uh, was excellent. Very few adverse events uh, related to the drug, to discontinuation, uh, or any adverse events at all. The weight gain, now a lot's been published on this, so I'll just remind you, three kilogram weight gain in the first 48 weeks and then a kilogram per year, which is consistent with previous studies. Small declines in spine and hip bone mineral density, which is not surprising in a treatment-naive study. 
mean change is less than 1.4% over four years and no renal-related discontinuations in the study. So outcome, so my take-home points for the people that were originally arranged to BFTAF over a four-year period, high rates of virological suppression, no resistance. This is important. We really lack long-term data. It's so good to see these, these data coming. The regimen was well-tolerated, no discontinuation to renal events, and that's good to see over a longer period. So really confirming long-term efficacy and safety of BFTAF. Finally, lenacapavir in heavily treatment people. This is a phase two and three study. Now, lenacapavir, to remind you, is a first-in-class capsid inhibitor with, it, with really high potency in vitro, it's picomolar concentrations, and it would work against strains resistance to NRTIs, NNRTIs, integrase inhibitors, or PIs because it's a new class. So this is a study which enrolled people who had viral loads greater than 400 on their current treatment. They had to have resistance to two agents from at least three of the four classes, and they had to have less than two fully active agents. It's a small study. It's a proof of concept, 36, 36 people. And it was a two-to-one randomization towards lenacapavir plus the failing regimen or placebo plus the failing regimen. Now, if you look at the study design, you'll see that for the first two weeks, they got either lenacapavir or placebo. So it's essentially a monotherapy for two weeks. And this is because the primary endpoint of studies like this are to show a 0.5 log drop by day 15. Now, if this happened, then everybody went on to get lenacapavir and their, their regimen was then optimized to an optimized background OBR. They went on for 52 weeks. Now, at the bottom, you can see there was an unrandomized, a non-randomized cohort. Uh, and this was for everybody who, who failed, who basically failed the criteria virologically. Uh, either they, for various reasons, I won't go into it, but they were put into the study and they were also allowed to receive lenacapavir to give, to give more people a chance to, to, to receive the drug. So in these heavily treatment experienced people, two of the 72 people developed capsid mutations, conferring high level of resistance. These mutations were the M66I and the N74D developed at week 10, uh, the M66I at week 26. Both the people resuppressed, one with or one without a change in optimized backbone. And this is important to note because the M66I very significantly impairs viral replication. So, you know, there are other drugs like this, like 3TC, very, very significantly reducing viral replication. And this obviously has a good effect in terms of being able to suppress the virus. So in terms of proportion of participants uh, who achieved the 0.5 log drop at the primary endpoint, you can see that 88% did on lenacapavir versus 17% uh, the placebo. Uh, and if you look at the mean change in viral load, the lenacapavir on its own achieved a minus 1.93 log drop. So this is a very good outcome in terms of potency. Um, and in terms of safety, no treatment-related serious adverse events or discontinuations, only really minor side effects. So very safe, no significant lab events. That's good news. Um, about half had uh, at least one drug-related injection site reaction. It's a subcutaneous injection, this drug. Um, and 80% were grade one. And it was uh, no uh, discontinuations due to these injection site reactions. Um, and they were mainly swelling, erythema, nodule, and pain. So in these treatment experience patients, my take-home points would be 
that lenacapavir resulted in a rapid and clinically significant bar low decline because you really want a too low drop before you, you want to say that a regimen is, is potent and this drug actually achieved this. When added to a failing regimen uh, as a monotherapy in a highly treatment experienced cohort. Lenacapavir led to high rates of virological suppression when com combined with an optimized background, and it was generally safe, well-tolerated, with no discontinuations due to AEs, a little bit of nausea and diarrhea with the oral lead-in phase. Injection site reactions were very tolerable, grade one, and resolved quickly. So the additional trial program is going to study the role of lenacapavir in treatment and also in, in prevention. It's important because the drug it has a, a six-monthly half. It can be given as a six-monthly injection. So lots of potential uh, for the future. So I'm going to stop there uh, and open up to questions. Let me see if I can manage to work the platform. Um, someone has asked how high were the viral loads? Um, so, yeah, the, the viral loads for the Nacapavir arm were reasonably high. People were actually failing quite significantly. They were, they were unsuppressed. So you, as you would expect, you know, for, for these sorts of studies around four log. Um, and then what is the likely place of injectables for PrEP and treatment in the light of more worrying resistance data presented here? Okay. So um, the question is, what do I think the likely place of injectables will be in PrEP and treatment? So let's take treatment. So the comment is that there is worrying resistance data for treatment. Now, what I would say, let's take firstly, uh, long-acting uh, cavitagrin piverine. I would say that uh, I would say that a 1% uh, failure rate for a regimen is a low failure rate. It's, I'd say it's very efficacious. Uh, and 11 out of 1,000 people failing to me, is, is less of a concern. I think the important thing to mention is that there has been a predictive um, model developed. Um, uh, it was presented um, by uh, William Spreen from Vive last year in HIV Glasgow, and they evaluated, what they did is they tried to work out what the combination predictor factors would be so you can work out who might fail long-acting cavitegravir or based on looking at all the failures, which, which are very few, in fact, over the whole cavitegravir or program. And what they what they worked out is the strongest predictors were previous ropivirine uh, mutations that were archived. So really having an NRTI history and a history of failure is really the biggest risk factor. The other high risk factor was uh, having the L74I polymorphism at baseline, which is something that is common in the A6A1 subtype, which is mainly uh, particularly found in Russia and Eastern Europe as the commonest factors. BMI was associated, but was a minor factor. Um, and also the repivirine level at week sort of eight was also an important factor, week four and week eight, the drug level. So essentially, when you know this um, and you're looking at prescribing the drug, I would worry about giving this drug for treatment in someone who had had NNRTI failure or an unknown history of NNRTI exposure. Um, but that would be my main concern for PrEP. I think what's really encouraging about the uh, OA3 data is that uh, so few people develop, well, nobody developed resistance uh, in the tail phase. Um, and I think that it is quite possible uh, to salvage this, this regimen. Uh, you know, we, we know that it can be salvaged. So I think, I think the important thing is that all therapy is not for everybody. And it's about balancing the excellent efficacy for people that can't take oral treatment with a small chance of resistance and how to manage that. 
Um, for lenacapavir, yes, you can see some resistance. We do need much more data on uh, first line and second line treatment before we can comment on what that will mean. So, okay, so now that uh, cabotegravir proven is available on the market, would I recommend Q8 dosing for your patients at this time? Well, I think they've gone for a Q8 license. I think the Q8 data are excellent in terms of efficacy. Um, it's as efficacious, non-inferior to Q4. I think that um, I would be comfortable giving the drug, uh, whether it was Q4 or Q8 did not come up in the predictive model as being predictive of, of, of failure. It was about the nature of the, the patients. Um, I mean, I think some people may wish to, to, to give it for a period of time once a month and then transition to every two months. Um, but they've certainly achieved a license for, uh, based on, on, on two monthly injections. Um, any significant data regarding Derevran? So there wasn't a lot on Derevran at this conference. Uh, the only data that was presented on Derevran was actually the combination of Islatravir and Derevran. And this was an abstract that I actually presented looking at um, the a blip analysis of the phase 2b Islatravir via Derevran study, uh, which showed uh, the same number of blips uh, with uh, Islatravir and, uh, and Derevran versus the comparator, which was TDF. 3C and Reverend, and that blips were not predictive of failure. Um, okay, after all of those vaccines for COVID, how soon are we getting a vaccine for HIV? Now, there is an interesting point. So, um, what I would say to this is that a lot of the plenaries talked about how much the HIV work in terms of neutralizing antibodies, particularly, and also vaccines, has set us up for success in terms of rapidly being able to develop a vaccine. Uh, for example, the HIV uh, adenoviral vector vaccines were something that were, were easy to adapt uh, to many the two adenoviral vector vaccines that are currently uh, licensed. Um, and the mRNA platform has also been looked at. So I think that it's a two-way street. The HIV work has literally underpinned the rapidity of the vaccine and the neutralizing antibody development. The Rockefeller Group who are developing neutralizing antibodies in HIV are exactly the same people who are able to come forward with the technology uh, and develop uh, the Regen co-neutralizing antibodies, which have literally provided spectacular results uh, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths for those that receive the, the, the monoclonal antibody. Um, and actually, it also looks as though it's good against the variants, the South African and the Kent variant. Um, so essentially, I would say that um, in terms of in terms of the vaccines, um, I think that oh, sorry, I think that's what I would say. Let me see. Um, I've got lots of questions. Do any of the new data on weight gain and integrase inhibitors change your practice? So the weight gain and integrase inhibitors. Um, what has come out of this conference is that. A lot of the, the differences that you see between when you look particularly at the advanced study between dolutegravir and efavirenz is driven by the fact that um, that uh, efavirenz causes weight loss and both TAF and integrase inhibitors cause weight gain. What's being touted now is that this is sort of a return to normal effect and that you would expect to, uh, that uh, these agents cause abnormal weight loss and that being on these drugs allows you to, return to what your normal would be. It doesn't mean it's good if your normal is morbidly obese, but that you would go back more to your genetic normal. Um, and it does there's, there's fat studies that are being done now, and these fat studies are actually beginning to show uh, potentially a return to normal 
uh, in terms of people who switch from other agents to integrase inhibitors. And there's also work going on in mitochondria trying to understand whether um, there is some effect of integrase inhibitors on mitochondria. So there's a lot of work going on. Um, were there any data on response to the vaccines in people with HIV? There weren't. <clears throat> there are some data that have been reported <clears throat> on the Novavax vaccine suggesting worse outcomes for people with HIV uh, with the Novavax Novavac vaccine in the South African strain, particularly in South Africa. So that's some data, but that, that wasn't at the conference. Um, any new data on neural tube defects for women using DTGs in conception? So the Tsipamo cohort um, reported last year. And what was found is that the original signal that was found has completely gone away and there's now no additional risk for women receiving dolutegravir versus efavirenz and dolutegravir can be prescribed to women of childbearing age during conception. It's not associated statistically with neurotrubular defects. That happened because um, women were not given the opportunity to enter clinical trials during pregnancy, so no data were collected. And then when women, when the WHO provided Dolutegravir, women then entered into a giant uncontrolled experiment and a finding occurred in a small denominator, which was then found to be wrong. Um, okay, so any data on choosing to change treatment due to weight gain away from an integrase inhibitor? No, we don't know what to do about the weight gain. There is no evidence now that actually switching away once the weight gain has happened makes any difference. Um, so no, I'm afraid not. I think that's pretty much the questions. Thank you, Dr. Orkin. And thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full Virtual CROI 2021 conference coverage program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. And be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease and HIV topics. Thank you.